Jesus Christ. What did we just witness? Absolutely disgusting. It's one thing to lose to the Portland Trailblazers if they have a superhuman effort from Shaden Sharp, probably his best game of the season. But Shaden Sharp is just one player amongst a lineup of guys who played pretty fucking terribly. DeAndre Ayton, there's really no debating this. He was outperformed by his backup. It was another miserable outing for him after that six-point turd he laid against us earlier in the beginning of this game. The Cavaliers, well, let's hold up. Let's hold up. Let me play the stupid open, and then I'll talk about how we shit our pants again in a winnable environment. Oh, two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. Garland's Fields down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Frog. A podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is. My favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. All right, Cavs fans. I guess we have to do this, don't we? So, Cavaliers drop a game that I... I'll be honest. I was treating this game pretty trivially. I was creating side quests. In the pregame, I saw some ESPN handicapper refer to the over-under on DeAndre Ayton as a lock, saying that he would absolutely, all caps, destroy Jared Allen and that 24.5 combined points and rebounds. It was a certainty for him to get this. So, clearly, that would get my dander up. Which, by the way, entomology lesson, the origin of get one stander up. This is kind of becoming a thing. Some people use mailbag pots to fill time when they don't have anything to say. I talk about the origins of expressions that only 60-year-olds would say. To get one's dander up is derived from uh, the brewing process of yeast. And the froth that results from that brewing was dander. So as it rose, that was the yeast, you know, fermenting or whatever it may be. I don't know. I'm not a fucking brewer. Some of you, I'm sure, are. I'm assuming a portion of my audience are alcoholics, or at least they are tonight after losing to the Portland Trailblazers. But needless to say, I got fixated on this man who I've never heard of, despite being named after a basketball player, Alex Caruso. I got fixated on his absolute lock of a bet because one, I love Jared Allen. Two, I hate that he used all caps on destroy. But it would never have happened if it weren't for the fact that I thought it was basically a foregone conclusion that the Cavaliers riding a two-game win streak should come in here and dominate this game. And at least in the beginnings, things looked reasonably good. We had issues, of course. So did the Portland Trailblazers. Now, at halftime, Darius Garland had four turnovers. You may say to yourself, on a night where he had eight overall, well, that was a terrible sign. We should have known something was up. Except that the Cavaliers themselves had 23 points off of Trailblazers turnovers. And they were on pace to set an NBA record for turnovers in a single game. 15 first-half turnovers by the Blazers. They shot in objectively horrible 4-for-14 four from outside the arc. DeAndre Ayton, pretty ineffective. Shaden Sharp, okay. I mean, he was okay. Nine points, five rebounds, a few assists. But Jeremy Grant, also terrible. That three-headed monster, if if you want to call it a monster, of Shaden, Jeremy Grant, and Ayton, if you would have told me two of the three of them would be negatives out there and Shaden would just be passable. 15 turnovers from the Blazers. Jeremy Grant begins 0 of 5 
Aiton is being dominated on the inside. The Cavaliers had 32 points in the paint in the first half. The Cavaliers' first 16 points came at the rim. Up until Mitchell finally interrupted that with a step-back jumper that pushed our lead to seven. Our bigs looked dominant. The pick-and-roll game was awesome. Aiton was doing a piss-poor job of giving any resistance. Finally, Mitchell hit a step-back two to push our lead to seven with our 18th point. There were problems, obviously. As much as it felt like the Cavaliers were getting what they wanted inside, as much as it felt like Aiton was playing passively and that Jeremy Grant wasn't hitting shots and that the Portland Trailblazers could not stop turning over the ball. I mean, there were just some objectively horrible passes from Shaden Sharp. At the end of the first quarter, Dwapareth came in and he chipped in five points in a 7-0 Blazers run to cut our lead to just three. Uh, and I love that guy. As far as, I mean, he's a likable story anyway because he's 27 years old. He's been fighting for an NBA spot for a while. And I think you can objectively say he outperformed DeAndre Ayton tonight. So we roll into the second quarter and it's only a three-point game. Because, and this was a theme, two times in the first half, things started to get away from the Blazers and they called timeouts. The first one was in that first quarter where when we took a double-digit lead, Billups called a timeout, put Reith in the game, 7-0 run. But it repeated itself again in the second quarter. So we get our shit together in the second quarter. JB puts in the small ball lineup, and I absolutely loved the shift of Mobley at center, Nyang and Levert out there just making hustle plays. Okoro even chipped in a little bit. But big plays in that stretch from Karras, a huge offensive rebound from him, a huge back-to-back play from George Yang, where he was chasing a play from behind for a guy who pulled up for three, swatted the shot. I can't even recall who that was. Came down to our end on offense and banged in a three-pointer. They felt pivotal. And the lead expanded till we were up by 16 points. Again, though, Billups, timeout. Now, again, I was fixated on my little side missions because I thought, okay, we've got a 16-point lead. Aiton basically vanished at the end of the first, and his backup is playing well enough to keep him off the floor in the second. We're going to win this thing. Jeremy Grant isn't particularly dangerous. I don't feel like I should be threatened by a bench unit of Scoot Henderson, Jabari Walker, Matisse Thibel, and Duop Reed. I don't feel like I should at least be threatened that they're going to come back from a 16-point deficit. It's one thing to get some good possessions, but a 14-2 run, I mean, they could have been up. If not for back-to-back dunks by Struess and Mobley to finally stop the bleeding and and bring us into the halftime with a six-point cushion. Certainly, again, I felt the same way as I did at the end of the first quarter, that there is no world in which the Cavaliers should only be leading by six if the Portland Trailblazers have 15 first-half turnovers. Now, keep this in mind for context of just how atrocious that is. The high for turnovers committed in a game this season is 25 They were well on pace to have the worst turnover performance of any team in the league. We certainly weren't much better. Compound that with the fact that they were absolutely atrocious from outside the arc. Four for 15. The only thing that made this game competitive is the fact that we shot equally horrible. Only three three three-pointers. Our starting lineup was a combined 0 for 8 in the first half. From outside the arc. Karis Nyang and Okoro. Okoro made the first three-pointer. That's generally not a good sign. And consider this. 
after the first half tonight. The bench unit was by and large positive. We were a plus four from Levert, a plus seven from Yang, a plus four from Okoro. To just show you how horrible those guys played in the second half, Levert finished with a team leading minus 17. More false hope was to be had because we opened up the third quarter with an 8-0 run. Again, the Cavaliers up by 14 points. This has to be it, right? Okay, we give up a run. We fight back to a big lead. We give up a bigger run. We fight back to an even bigger lead. Surely, the Cavaliers will dial in and get this win so we can head on to Detroit, right? No, wrong. Evan Mobley is bawling in the third quarter. He scores his 10th point of the quarter after two straight baskets from him to push the Cavaliers' lead to 12 with about four minutes left. Now, this time, it wasn't a Portland Trailblazers timeout that sunk us. The Blazers ripped off a couple buckets, and JB calls a timeout with about three minutes left. Well, from that point forward, the Blazers scored eight points unanswered to tie the game up at 70. It was sharp, and it was due up. Again, those two just menaces tonight. Big, timely buckets that I did not care for even a little bit. And this is when I started to really worry. The first two runs were bad. This third run was, oh Christ, you only got about a quarter left. Now they managed to take the lead with eight seconds left in the third quarter, but Darius Garland, end zone to end zone, put that ball in, gave us a one-point lead into the fourth quarter. Please, please, let's stop dicking around and get this thing done. But no, because the fourth quarter was a horrible watch. Shaden Sharp did whatever he wanted. He got to wherever he wanted And right out of the gate, he scored seven of his 10 points. They took command, and we spent the quarter trying to fight back. Now, there were moments I had hope. It got ugly. They were up by 12 points with six minutes left. But Mitchell did try to force the action, and he ripped off six straight points of his own. He got to the line six times in the fourth quarter. He was playing aggressive as hell. He was getting fouls on these guys, but we simply weren't getting as many stops as we needed to in that stretch. And despite getting the game down to four points with two and a half minutes left, that's as close as it would become. And unfortunately, we had a couple blown opportunities late in the game. Now, I don't fault Mobley for the shot clock violation. It just left his hand slightly too late. He made a basket that ended up not counting. And right after that, Shaden Sharp scored again. Then we get another opportunity. This time, JB calls a coach's challenge on a foul that they called on Struess, a shooting foul. We lose that. That could have gone either way. I wasn't particularly outraged. We lost that challenge. And I think JB used it primarily because there was only a minute left in the game. He was going to leave it on the table otherwise. But that effectively doomed us. There is very little to celebrate. Very few silver linings. If there is one... It's Evan Mobley, who continues to thrive, continues to be effective around the rim. Tonight, 20 points, 8 rebounds, a few assists, a couple steals. Made both of his free throws. This guy is becoming a free throw sniper. What was a weakness has become a strength, and that should be celebrated. Fro got a double-double. It felt largely hollow, though. And we cannot have 8 turnovers from Darius Garland. You cannot do it. Our front court was horrible from outside the arc. And all the guys you would want to get up volume got up volume. But at the end of the evening, when Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, and Max Struess are a combined four for 23, that is not going to get it done. 
the bench, as good as they were in the first half, none of them made a three-pointer in the second half. And Shaden Sharp, who I enjoyed later on in this episode in my conversation with Bryce Simon, you're going to hear just a fun Shaden Sharp piece of audio that should make you like the guy. And instead, he ripped our hearts out tonight. So fuck that guy and fuck macaroni and cheese. And that might not make sense to you now, but it's going to in a moment because I'm going to transition to a look ahead to the Detroit Pistons and just kind of a general conversation about third year players that I had with my friend Bryce Simon. I think you'll enjoy the second half of this podcast much more than what was a very somber first half. But I told you I would make a commitment to doing these even after losses, even though tonight I had no desire to do so. So I guess what I'm saying, I'm patting myself on the back. If I could get my dick to my mouth, I'd be... Joining me on the podcast, Bryce Simon, my first guest on the podcast. And uh, at the time, you were a co-host of the Pistons Pulse podcast, but you've blown up since onto the national scene. Because since we last spoke, now part of the Game Theory podcast on a semi-regular basis. So this is my first opportunity to just congratulate you publicly. But I'm stoked because now I feel comfortable just jumping into some general NBA subjects. I will say it was an awesome opportunity opportunity for Sam Vecini to ask me on over there. But man, like it, it, it increased my workload a lot, Bob. It increased my workload a lot. I was going to say, I mean, I'd feel a lot more pressure. It's one thing to watch the same team for 82 games. I watch every game, I take notes, and I feel like I'm in you know good shape. <laughs> this is different, man. Like I do a lot of prep work watching as many games as I can, and then Sam will text me like, this is what we're going to talk about. On Usually we record on Sundays. I legit have 10 to 12-page Google Docs of notes. So there's a lot more ground to cover um, by joining that pod. I got to ask you, man. What is it like this year on this Pistons beat? How do you change things up in a situation where you've lost, at the time we're taping this, 15 in a row? And I looked at your schedule. I mean, maybe you get Memphis, but there's a distinct possibility that this pushes to the middle of December. You got a jazz game that feels like the new Wizards game down the line, where it's like, maybe that's the one where you say, this is absolutely the one that we have to win. But how do you feel at this point, what's the what's the fan base? What's the emotions? I mean, so the fan base is like done, right? Like there's some that are make Tom Gore sell the team, make you know, fire Troy Weaver. Can we get out of Monty Williams contract? I know we're gonna talk about this a little bit. Like Cade Cunningham isn't any good. And you know, some people legitimately think they should trade Cade Cunningham right now. I've seen multiple tweets, people in my DM saying, trade Cade Cunningham, build around Jaden Ivey, Asar, and Jalen Duran. And for me. I'm not like a lifelong Pistons fan. I've only done it since December of 2020. So all I've seen is losing, but I'm not this vested fan like I am with the Kansas City Chiefs. If the Kansas City Chiefs were on a 15-game losing streak, I would lose my mind. It's not what I am as a fan of the Pistons, covering the Pistons, whatever I am, like whatever you consider me in this world of Pistons content creation. But just as a content creator, somebody that does a weekly podcast and all of that, it's tough to watch the fan base be so darn frustrated omari and i just recorded on tuesday and we do lives it was our most viewed live episode like the most engagement we got in terms of people that were with us live maybe it's and car like, crash syndrome yeah i i think i think what it is truly they either need to be really really bad this bad or they need to be really really good because when they were like two and two we weren't really getting that much engagement so it's just 
And I don't have a lot of answers for why they're so bad or I have some answers for that, but what they're supposed to do going forward. Like that's what's tough with the situation. Well, are there things that you definitively know? Like these are the things I pick up on the outside, the shooting, the lack of yes. shooting and the inability to put guys around Cade who could maybe mask some of the problems he's having. I know he's he's got turnover issues and the shooting even on his own end and blah, blah, blah. Mannix wrote quite a uh, negative uh, Pistons piece today. Is there people that you think these are the core guys or is it just despondent across the board? I still have a little bit of faith in the four young guys, Cade, Ivy, Asar, and Durin. I don't think I ever believed you are just going to grow those four together and they're going to take you to contender situation. Like that, I don't feel like in general, that's how it works. It's working that way with the Oklahoma City Thunder right now, but not everybody is the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think my biggest miscalculation, mine as well, like I'll take, I, I've tweeted this multiple times, I'll hold my own receipts. But the organization's biggest miscalculation was not putting a true bucket getter on this team to help with that load offensively because Cade isn't even 100 games into his career. Ivy's just in his second year. Asar is not very good offensively, Bob. And what they did was they counted on Boyan at 34 years old, who hasn't played yet, or Alec Burks, who's 32 years old and is struggling from the field right now, or they just mismanaged the situation overall. They needed to go get a guy that could get a bucket. Bob, this was the starting lineup to start the year for the Pistons. Cade, Killian Hayes, Asar Thompson, Isaiah Stewart, Jalen Durant. I ask of you, who is the second option in a functional NBA offense in that roster, on that five-man lineup? Who's the number two option? Isaiah? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Who's a number three option? Who would you feel comfortable saying is a number three option out of those guys? Here, let me finish my rant real quick. Cade averages 22 points a game. Jaden Ivey is second at 12, and I don't know if we'll get into all the Jaden Ivey not starting stuff or not, but at 12. You know how many of your Cleveland Cavaliers average more than 12 points a game after Donovan Mitchell? One, two, three, four, five. You guys have five guys on your roster that average more than the second leading score on the Detroit Pistons. Let's chill before we just say Cade isn't any good at all. Well, and, th and that's some of my frustration about the discourse about young guys is that we parallel these guys just in vastly different situations. Mobley is not a guy that you can parallel to a guy like Cade or a Cam yeah, Thomas. Yeah, because one, their role is totally different, but two... You know, you drop a guy into a team with legitimate secondary options, a lot of these, the turnovers, the the lack of... I mean, the other night, Mobley had a great night. Historically, one of the, yeah. the best he's ever put together. Only had one assist in that night. But if you watch the game, you came away realizing how many of Mobley's passes didn't get converted. I mean, he could have been flirting with a 4 by 5 there. He could have piled up 4 or 5 assists, but if guys aren't finishing it, what do you do there? Ivy is an interesting case to me because when we played you before ivy hadn't yet dug his way out of the doghouse in terms of the the starting versus bench stuff but in looking at his numbers from the bench at least statistically speaking fairly efficient even more efficient than when he's been starting but the impact on Cade with ivy in the starting lineup seems to favor the idea that him making his way back into the starting lineup has been you know a positive how have you felt about ivy's development in these first two years the last couple games, the, the Wizards game, which was like the Super Bowl of trying to get a win, and then the Lakers game, 
just kind of the energy and the vibe wasn't great. But I think he's improved a lot with his finishing, the way he plays, the pace he plays at. But that's another contributing factor, Bob, is I just brought up, okay, Boyan hasn't played a game yet. So if you thought he was going to be an option, and then if you were going to do this with Jaden Ivey where you were going to send a message to him, start him on the bench, only give him 20 minutes a night, and say you're going to earn your minutes on the defensive end, then you definitely had to go get somebody else could score the ball because he wasn't going to be there. Those two guys, I think on our podcast, we predicted both would average about 18 points a game this season for the Pistons. Maybe that's a little high, but essentially those are guys that are going to go get you 35 points a night. Boyan hasn't played, and because of minutes, Ivy's only averaging 12. But Ivy's 51% from the field, 36% from three. The rim finishing, truly, Bob, has gotten so much better. Like, truly, it was really rough as a rookie. It's gotten way better here in his second season. Coming into this season, I'm sure nobody, I don't know that anyone expected you to be amongst the elite, but certainly not to be struggling this much. So knowing you got Boyan in the situation you do contractually and knowing that you're going through it right now, do you think they don't try to move him though simply because too little too late at this point and what incentive is there to really hold him and then not be able to recoup anything from him? So that's what's really hard now is I think this year was, I think they truly thought they had a team that was going to compete. I thought they would be 27 to 30 wins, which would have been an improvement over 17. I don't know if they I don't know if they can keep those guys. Like I think the plan was probably always to trade them by the deadline, but do you need to keep them around to get some positive momentum going into the offseason? Like I don't have the answer to what is the move. Everybody wants Troy Weaver fired. I'm like, what's the new GM going to do right now? Like what what is the move to make this thing better? I'm not saying Troy Weaver deserves his job right now. I just don't know what it's going to fix in the immediate. How do you get through the next two months? Well, that and that's the interesting thing. Is it's like you pull the, the trigger on moving a boy on for whatever you can get, and then do you even get an opportunity to see Cade with a little bit more spacing? Now, I know that you do a lot of draft coverage, but I've heard you say on the pod, it just isn't as satisfying this year because there isn't a Wemby. Let's yeah. say, let's just play out a hypothetical world where you guys end up you know, with a top two, three pick. Is there somebody that you look to and say, this guy is the fit. There's some guys I like, but I don't think there's a guy where I'm like, oh, this would be awesome. Like, I'm not as high on other as others on this guy. Matas Buzelis is a guy that can really space the floor, hasn't played any games with the Ignite here recently, so we haven't got to evaluate him as much as some of the other guys. Jacoby Walter is a guy at Baylor I'm really high on right now. He's a little bit smaller. And like, that's where it's like, okay, Jacoby makes sense if you're probably not going to have Jay Nivey. Or if you think you, there's a lot of people, and I don't mind this, that think Cade can kind of play as the three man defensively. So you could play two other quote unquote guards next to him. But Jacoby's more like 6'4, six, 6'5. Six, He's not like a wing forward. I think you need like a wingy forward that can really get a bucket. And there's just not a guy that I see. Like, I don't think Ron Holland is that guy, especially on ball. Cody Williams is starting to really be a guy I like at Colorado. But as I just go through name after name and, re, you know, just go, th- it, it speaks to there isn't that guy. And that's been my point is losing games. There's not even anything satisfying about that because it's not one cl- step closer to Wimby or even Brandon Miller, to be honest with you. it's t- Here's the other thing. Can you develop five lottery picks at the same time? Does it actually make sense to move one of these guys for somebody that's more proven because you don't necessarily have the minutes and the manpower? and all of that, the bandwidth to develop five of them 
all at the same time, especially if they don't fit perfectly together. Maybe I'm completely off base here, but part of me feels like Hayes' return will be largely contingent on him being on some sort of value deal. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know that I'd want internal obstacles for them as much as possible. I mean, I think it would be nice to be able to... I would roll the dice on another lotto guy and be like, well, maybe it can shift beef stew into a lesser prominence role where oftentimes, as much as I love him, he's got ties to, you know, near where I grew up and all that. It does feel like that's a spot where he would be better suited uh, in a little less prominent of a role. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't mean to like... I've said this for a while. I think Isaiah Stewart is a really good third big... Let's just say you believe in Cade and Jaden Ivey. Like, let's say you think those two are really good, and I do think they're really good. Maybe I'm the last one. Asar Thompson is a rookie who, as good as he is defensively and on the boards, shoots like 13% from three. The Pistons ran a game to uh, play to open the game the other night. His man, D'Angelo Russell, on strong side corner where all basketball coaches will tell you you don't help off of, he helped off of all the way into the lane forcing a Cade passing kick to the corner and an Asar three-point miss. I love Asar. I think he's going to be really good. That's not great in your starting lineup. I think guys are just asked to be in roles they're not ready for, and therefore you're not seeing them be the most efficient, the best, all of those things. And again, to me, that was the biggest miscalculation. Okay. Okay. Well, I I'm going to try to lighten up the tone a little bit here. <laughs> so we play you guys. We play the Magic. Coming up, there's some interesting parallels in that there's multiple guys that were, you know, top of the draft class people in that 2021 draft. Now, I wanted to do an exercise here because uh, we've spoken about the issues Cade's having, but let's take Cade and Mobley out of this thing. I'm curious if there's standouts that you look to. If if you couldn't take Cade or Mobley, who would be your pick amongst the draft class? I feel like that's Franz, right? Like Franz is the guy that that would be the next up. Um, I, I honestly, I wasn't doing NBA draft stuff like it, real in depth yet. Uh, I'll tell you the guy who has really grown on me is Shingoon. And, you know, Rockets fans are gonna be like, we told you, we told you, we told you. Like, I get it. I understand. Like, sorry that it's taking me a little while to come around on this guy that's not uber athletic and all. But the skill level is really showing with Shingoon. He has, I think they call it the Flamingo in Houston. I don't know why, but it's like the Dirk fadeaway. They've, they've dubbed it the Flamingo. The moves they made in, in comparison have, have looked very smart, right? Like Fred Van Fleet may be overpaid, but if that's making life easier on other guys and letting them be in their role and grow, then it's absolutely not an overpay. So I like those guys. Jalen Green is still, I still love what he could be. A lot of times when I watch, it's just like, finish the play if that makes sense it's just not quite there and then scotty barnes is interesting as well so i like i feel like those are the guys at the top am i missing somebody those feel like the ones no i think i this is my tiering i would say for me it would be a choice between franz shangun or scotty um yeah i think so but i think you can also make the argument that there are some guys uh, I mean, Cam Thomas is having a great season. <laughs> Jalen Green, while he's taken a little bit of step back in usage, but obviously for the betterment of the team. And then you have a bunch of dudes who maybe are... Here's the guy that I really love. This is my my darling, I guess, but we haven't even got to see him this year. He's supposedly on the about to debut any day now, and that would be Trey Murphy. 
uh, the third. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of his. He might be in that next grouping for me. I thought Jalen Johnson had a yes. great start to the it, season. I have him written down here. He leads all the third year guys in true shooting percentage uh, before he went down with that injury. So while he didn't get a lot of usage until they got Collins out of the way, uh, he's proven to be a, a pretty valuable component of that team. But one thing I, I thought has been interesting listening to game theory is I Sam Sam is a big advocate for Jalen Suggs. And you got a couple of guys who maybe they're not the versatile offensive players of some of the other dudes in this draft class, but Suggs, Herb Jones, uh, very impactful on the opposite side of the ball. So for me, I think yeah. it's really a debate of I would take Franz over Shengun. Those very large guys who can play kind of two ways on the wing, and Orlando's just an incredible defensive team. That to me, maybe it's the Cavs looking at the Cavs roster and seeing kind of what they're lacking and looking at a guy like Franz and saying, oh, Jesus, what would he do in this system? But I like that despite how prolific Shengun looks like he'll be on offense as being kind of just a, a hub in that system, I think I like the balance better of a Franz. I think for me, it's just like the archetype of player I would prefer, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, and listen, Maybe I need to start a jet, right? Because we see Jokic obviously on a way different level than anybody else. And that's no slight to the next two names I'm going to say. That's just a uh, Jokic has earned the right to be in his own stratosphere when we're talking about this type of big. But we've seen Sabonis be good. We've seen Shingun be good. Like these bigger players, you run the offense through them in the same sort of way. So I need to continue to come around with that. I'm with you of like this large jumbo wing that can initiate offense a little bit, but can play off the ball as much as you want. That really defends, you know, like all of those things. Like I, I just, I am in on Franz as the archetype. And that's why I, I like the tier system though, that you brought up because putting Shingun in the same tier shows the respect that he deserves and has earned in terms of his name in this conversation based off team need and stuff like that you could make an argument for Shingun over Franz but yeah th those guys have been insanely impressive I'm waiting on on Trey I, I think this could be one of those years where a lot of the woes that the Pelicans have had in this early season I, people don't realize it but I mean from March forward in the 20 games he had moving forward this he was a 50 you know mid 40s 85% shooter who has taken eight three-point attempts a game. And he's yeah. a solid defender, too. So those type of long wings who can keep teams honest. I know Franz has had his struggles from outside the three-point arc, but these last two games for him especially, at least as the time we're taping this, double 30-point games, it seems like he's shaken out of a lot of that. And that team has just gone through the roof this year. A, a complete, you know, revelation. And I think maybe that's where I give Franz a little extra credit is, listen, again, I was wrong about the rock. What the Rockets did this summer, the Magic actually didn't do that. Bob, they they added Joe Ingles essentially, and their young guys are really. And that's where I maybe I give him just a slight edge because it is truly him yeah. and Paolo, and then this young backcourt that you know Fultz and Suggs and Anthony Black. As much as I love all these guys, they don't have really those veterans around them the way like the Rockets do and that doesn't mean I'm not trying to demean them I'm just saying maybe that's like a tiebreaker for me and just that these young magic guys are doing it the way like again I thought maybe these young Pistons were going to do it and well and I like the parallels between so much of the first two seasons of their existence has been a lot of Mobley versus Barnes Mobley versus Shengun what I want to happen 
is I want people to just accept that Mobley is the best one. And then what I want them to do is parallel the magic to the Rockets because in both those situations, they had the higher lotto guy, Suggs and Green, who are now kind of being outshone by the lower lotto guy yeah, that's true. In, in Franz and Shangun. So they need to turn their hatred against one another and people need to unite behind Evan as the low usage superstar that he is. That's what we need to happen. Is there such a thing as a low usage superstar? That 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 just doesn't sound right. Maybe not, but I'm saying that it is, and I think at least if any of these draft class guys from 2021 can make that case, it would be the one who was third for defensive player of the year last year. You got to be able to lift it up on that side of the court if you're, you know, sub 20% usage or hovering around 20% usage. So so as a game theory listener, how have you felt about our Chet versus Evan Mobley conversations. Have, uh, have you caught those episodes? Uh, well, I love Chet, man. If you want to hear a podcast that's a Cavalier podcast, but it sounds like it's really a Thunder podcast, just go listen to the one where they beat us because putting into context what Chet has done, for a guy who you give such allowances for these young bigs that come in and they don't have the muscle and the quote-unquote man's build, I think he's going to be unbelievable. And I'm so envious looking at that Thunder roster, knowing that they still got two first-round picks next year that are going to be the best of, you know, the Clippers, uh, the Rockets, and theirs. They get the two best. So that's probably two mid-lotto picks. But considering Shangun was a mid-lotto guy, you know, like you can find, if you have a good talent-identifying department, and I think you can make that case for the Thunder based on what they're getting out of so many young guys, they can be even better. The way he's able to hold up physically with his build does not make sense. No. Like, I don't care what anybody tells me. You can't tell me you look at Chet and go, oh, that's a guy that can set some hard screens here and there. And more importantly, that's a guy that can play with verticality, take contact from NBA, and he's starting. So NBA starters, we're not even talking about bench guys necessarily, and hold up physically in those situations. It just, he's been awesome. I just want all the Cavs fans to know, I defended Evan Mobley when we had that conversation and said it was not right to put Chet above Evan Mobley right now based off what Evan has already done in his young NBA career and being third in DPOY last year. So, beer the fro fans. That's right. Just know that I went to bat for Evan Mobley in that conversation. Bryce is in our pocket, Cavs fans. That's what uh, That's what I'm taking here. He can push our agenda on a national level to a much larger audience. So be so you should send Bryce lots of nice messages. Subscribe to all his podcasts because we need advocates. If there's a gripe of me as an angry, bitter Cavs fan who watches discourse and then just screams at random internet people, it's the concept of Evan hasn't met my expectations when within the role that he has, uh, I think over the course of this season, I mean, he just keeps getting better and better. I would be curious with Chet specifically. I know they get by with, you know, Jalen Williams as a small ball four, and he's great. No criticisms of him. I think it would be interesting to see them add another big where it lets Chet do some roaming even sure. more so than he does now because I think that's one of the nicest things that we've seen in these last few games with the Cavs is you've got Allen, but but some of our most effective lineups have been when Allen sits down and you can slide Mobley over and put the spacing around him with, you know, Struess and Yang and all those guys. You've got guards. You've got big guards already. you got a chance to add another person in that front court to really just round out a ridiculously deep and versatile roster. 
Well, the other thing is they can use those picks to go acquire yeah. the NBA-ready version Absolutely. of whatever they need. You that's know, like, probably that's the smarter. That's probably the smarter, no, because no. they're making that step now. I mean, do you, you don't have to wait out the timeline. You could drop a plug-and-play guy in. Yeah, and then you're not at the mercy of who falls in the draft, and does this guy pan out? Like, you can see whoever this guy is for five or six years, you know, player X that we're talking about. And the thing is, they can overpay in draft picks. They can reset the market in whatever way they want, because they have so much excess draft picks that it doesn't matter what they use or how many they use they're still going to have more and so i think i wonder if that's the way they end up going but you're right like they've drafted so well it's hard to say why not just keep drafting because even case and wallace looks really good right now they're in such a good spot they are okay so you've got a hard out we've got to get to the one non-basketball related subject <laughs> last week i was listening to the podcast right before thanksgiving and the subject of favorite thanksgiving food came up and i i messaged you because I felt like there was a sneak diss of mac and cheese uh, in there. I mean, uh, there was some advocacy for white gravy, but I felt like you kind of snuck in a little little piece of information that maybe I didn't realize, which is that you don't appear to be uh, a mac and cheese enthusiast. And then it got ugly on Thanksgiving. After ugly. You, yes, you posted a picture of, of mac and cheese, and the people, there was quote tweets, there's people in your mentions... Uh, I guess what I want to do here is I wanted to play you some audio because I've been trying to gather audio of people who might be in your camp. Uh, and I came upon this clip when listening to uh, Amon Schumpert's podcast. This is a man named uh, Kyer Gaines. I guess he's like a therapist type. Apparently not a big advocate for mac and cheese. Why don't you like mac and cheese? Oh, yeah. It's not that I don't like mac and cheese. I just don't think it's as good as everybody else think it is. That's the problem. It I needs say something else, dog. No, my favorite. It don't got chicken. no flavor profiles, dog. It, it need like some garlic or something. I don't get why everybody love it so much. The corners be straight. The middle be good. But it just tastes like cheese and salty noodles, bro. So that's one side of the debate. Shaden Sharp in one of those Jumbotron videos with the Blazers, he is a huge mac and cheese enthusiast. They pitted every Thanksgiving side imaginable against mac and cheese. And Shaden Sharp ran the gauntlet. Mashed potatoes or mac and cheese? Ooh, mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or butternut squash? Mac and cheese, nah. Mac and cheese or cranberry sauce? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or creamed spinach? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or sweet potato casserole? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or scalloped potatoes? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or Brussels sprouts? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or buttermilk biscuits? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or steamed broccoli? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or stuffing? Mac and ooh, nah, mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or cornbread? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or salad? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or sweet potato soup? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese or jello casserole? Mac and cheese. Alright. Shade, he, he must love his mac and cheese. Let's hope there's some on his menu tomorrow. So I guess what I'm trying to illustrate here is that there are fans. And there are haters, and there's wherever you lie, but it's a position which needs to be explained. So, Bryce, I would ask you, can you clarify your stance on mac and cheese? First off, I literally, I don't think I've ever deleted a tweet. I deleted that after 30 minutes because I'm just enjoying my Thanksgiving lunch, dinner, whatever you want to call it. 
And you're right. My, I'm like, dang, I have 20 notifications. What is going on here? And it was people like dumpster fire gifts. Like <laughs> this is, this looks like prison, prison food. I'm like, this is my family. You're coming at my family, bro. This is my exactly. This is my family <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner. What are you doing? Leave us alone. So I just deleted it. And like, I don't want to deal with this and have this ruin my Thanksgiving day. Um, listen, I like Mac and cheese. I just don't care if it's from a box. Great. I love Kraft's mac and cheese or whatever it is. If you want to slave away for two hours and put all this special ingredients in it and stuff, great. I'm sure it tastes good. It ain't going to taste a whole lot different than the box version. So you wasted two hours if you were trying to impress me. So I think I'm just easy to please as somebody that consumes food and appreciates the time and the efficiency of box uh, mac and cheese for, say, my wife. And I don't need to be a food snob like all those people that came after me on Thanksgiving Day. And now I re listen, Bob, this is how you know how much I care about you, how much I value our friendship. I just said on the Pistons Pulse. That oh, I'm going to play the audio. I'll play it for the audience. I, I will it. never talk about food again. <laughs> Here's that sound. Here's that sound real quick. If you like the food talk on the Pistons Pulse Maybe Omari will do it. Maybe Wes can get in on it. I'm out. This is how you know how much I value our friendship and how much I care about you in this podcast. This is the, the last time, and I'm doing it only because it's you. I just want you to know that. You owe me dinner whenever I'm in well, Kansas City. Well, he set the he, record straight. We're you, we're you, gonna have we're gonna go somewhere for dinner, and I'm I'm gonna order mac and cheese, and then I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna force you to eat it uh, because that's got to be the secondary most annoying part. Is anybody who hears this take is gonna be like, no, my mac and cheese is different. You just haven't had that yet. That's what it is. That's what. It, so Amari's like posting a picture of his mac and cheese, and these other and some of them have like meat in them. I'm like, if you add meat to it, it's not mac and cheese anymore. It's like a casserole or something. <laughs> like it's. Like, what are we doing here? Let me, <laughs> let me enjoy my craft mac and cheese in silence and in peace. What do you guys care if I'm living in this like world of not having the most amazing mac and cheese ever? So there you there you go, Bryce Bryce Simon, expert on the Pistons, a contributor to the Game Theory podcast, mac and cheese truther. I appreciate the time you took. I know you got stuff to do, but Bryce, best of luck, man, the rest of the season. I'm glad you could come on. I know we didn't really talk a, sh a shit ton of uh, Pistons here, but I enjoy talking to you, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you in person soon. Yes, sir. Yeah, right. I appreciate you having me. Appreciate you, man. So there we go. We're going to wrap that up. This is much longer podcast than I normally do. Hopefully, you didn't find that ponderous uh, as we veered into random subjects, but... Thank you for everybody who's joined me for the Fear the Fro podcast. Next up, the Detroit Pistons. Rate, review, all that stuff. And a special thank you to everybody who's been sending me the images of their Spotify rap. Honestly, I'm honored if I make any of your top fives. Uh, so for the people who did that, that is a true commitment. And I am monstrously appreciative, especially considering that I just ghosted you all in the offseason. So it would be hard to accumulate that many minutes of listening, given the complete disrespect with which I treated you in the summer. But next year, we're going to climb up even higher. I'm going to make some lists. I'm going to do it. So thank you all. I appreciate you. Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavs fan, voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Levert, live the vote, this has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.